One of the biggest stress factors in any relationship is money. It is often cited as the most common reason why couples fight. Money shortfalls can cause resentment in both members of the relationship. But it doesn't have to be this way. There are solutions. Today we're talking about a banking credit card structure for couples. Hey Money Geeks, this is the Money Bagel Show. We are a community of financial nerds who want to make smarter financial decisions and get an accelerated path to financial freedom. Today's show is about making sure we have a thoughtful banking structure that makes sense for us. If that is something that seems interesting, then stick around. I'm Gabe Kaplan. I'm a certified financial planner and a CPA running a specialized fee-only advisory firm in New York City. And my sole purpose is to help you make smarter money decisions. We took a pause from our regular posting schedule to attend some financial planning conferences. I also had a wedding in Miami, amazing party. Started at nine, finished who knows when, I don't remember. But we're back on a regular posting schedule. Today's show is an important one because it tackles the issue of financial merger between two loving people. It's not always about two married people. It could be two people who are not in a relationship for a long time and they decide to have some joint accounts and stuff like that. I think it's really important, specifically if you're about to enter into this long-term relationship with someone, you better have a clear vision of how you're going to manage money because it's a tough subject. So let's talk about the outline of the show. First, we'll introduce the topic of a banking union between partners. Then we'll jump into today's interview with Gabriel. Gabriel is my college friend, and we'll talk more about it later, but he's a normal guy, but not like any of us. He has a very unique way of how he's managed the union of his finances between him and his wife. Then we'll go over some cool new financial tech, and that's not all. We'll talk about some practical improvement idea. We'll answer a question from a listener, and we'll still leave time for my wife's favorite part of the show, which is trivia. But before we begin, we have to go through our most popular disclaimer. This podcast is not advice. It's just education. You definitely shouldn't take advice from me on this show. Now, all of this is great information, and I really hope you can use it. But I don't know anything about you, so don't take advice from me. And I would never try to give you advice because I only give advice to my clients. Before you make any decision you need to talk to your advisors and they could be your legal advisor, your tax advisor, or your financial advisor. You might have other advisors, but those are, I guess, are the main ones. And realize that this is just helpful hints in education. Now let's talk about today's relevant question. How do you combine your finances after marriage? And I'm talking about marriage here, but we can also mention that a lot of people merge their finances after they enter a long-term relationship with someone. It doesn't have to be always marriage, but for the sake of simplicity, I will use marriage as the term for a union between two people. Marriage is about compromise. And whether you've been married for two weeks or 20 years, it's important to be able to work together with your significant other. But here's the deal. It can be super challenging to work together on finances. In fact, according to a couple of studies, a strong minority of divorced adults cited money as the reason for their separation. So how do you avoid these differences and conflicts? I think there's a couple of things you can do. Number one is you should develop a shared set of priorities. If you create a set of joint goals and work together to achieve them, then there will be a more of a sense of a union there. You should probably have a household budget, combined household budget, that is should probably be very transparent with each other. You should also have a spending plan. A spending plan provides the details missing in your budget. It tells you how you'll address your expenses and how you'll work towards your goals. It's especially crucial 
to make sure that you have a plan when combining finances to avoid misunderstandings and confusion. Again, as I said before, transparency, you need to have honest conversations. Be honest with yourself, but also with your partner. And don't hold any judgment on their personal spending, especially if you have agreed upon that you had a set amount of money to spend for personal expenses. Don't judge them on what they spend. Avoid fights. That's a strategy where each of you get a couple of minutes to voice your opinions, but then you need to find common ground and a solution. You're here to work it out. Schedule regular budget conversations. And I don't mean like every day, but maybe once every two or four weeks. So once a month is a good timing for discussing how the spending went and how you are on track or not on track on achieving your goals. Now that we've introduced this week's topic, let's move on to the interview with Gabriel. Welcome, Gabriel, to the show, The Money Bagel Show. Thank you, Gabriel. How are you? Very good. So we're Gabriel and Gabriel, (laughs) former college roommate, former New York City roommate, before we each one of us found our respective wives. Yeah, thank God for that. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, what's going on in your life, and the topic of today, which is how to structure your banking and credit card accounts. Sure. So high level, I'm a 36-year-old professional living in New York City, married for the past two years, have a son who's about to turn one. I work as a director of sales engineering at a technology company here in the city, My whole career, I've had a lot of different jobs in technology and a lot of different applications, mostly related to software that we sell to different businesses. So engineering is your background? Yes, much like yours originally. After we graduated from college, we kind of went in different directions. But yes, I kind of stuck to the technology side. Very good. So you're married, you have a kid. How old is Isaac? He is 11 months old, just a few weeks away from the first birthday. And I I really can't believe it. You know, Gabe, first of all, happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So today is my birthday. We're recording on September 25th. Yeah. And obviously your listeners will catch on the fact that we lived together for a few years. We're both named Gabriel. We both very recently turned 36. You today and I, uh, six days ago, we both had children pretty much around the same time. I got married a little bit earlier than I did. Other than that, you know, pretty similar paths paths in life. So today we're discussing the way how to structure someone's banking account. And I think it's actually a really important topic, especially for those people who are getting married. You know, they face some questions here, like how do you join a banking structure living in a married life? I think we were talking pre-recording here about what is the right structure. And I think there's tremendous like variants of like, there's a lot of different models that you can follow. For my example, I have a structure where both of our incomes go into a joint account. We have two separate credit cards. We both spend from that credit card, our personal amount, and we have more or less like a joint credit card, which is technically under my name, but that's where the kind of like the joint expenses go. But that's me. I guess when I look at my parents, they have everything is joint. There's no separate credit cards. There's like one credit card and then a dependent. I think there's like complete transparency of the income. Granted, my father works. My mother really never worked. I think it's more of a, like a structure from the old days or from, you know, when everything was like super integrated. I think nowadays you're going to see some different structures because people are coming 
into marriage much later in life. Two people have incomes, they have different goals, right. different ideas. So why don't you tell us about how you guys structured it? Sure. It's very interesting. And I do think it's a function of people getting started later in life, right? When my parents first got married, you know, they were both very young. They were actually still in college. And the way things worked back then, you know, you started with nothing and you started together. Nowadays, people get married a lot later. They have their own career. They have their own plans, their own goals that they were saving for before actually coming together and, and starting life as a couple. So because of that, I do think that more and more you will see people having that separation. Now, in our specific case, we decided that for the most part, we have kept our separate accounts and we have kept separate credit cards. For all joint expenses, we have a joint credit card, again, which is technically under my name, but we both have a physical card. And that's where we get most of our expenses from. In addition to that, we do have one joint account, but the joint account is what we have dubbed the emergency fund. We really shouldn't touch it for any reason, you know, bearing like major sickness or any other type of catastrophe, which thankfully we haven't had to do. And, you know, we hope to never have it come to that. But, you know, we wanted to have that be a joint account because obviously in the case of an extreme emergency where both of us would be able to access it without needing to clear it with the other person. That sounds a little bit, to me, a little bit complex. <laughs> so my first question here is like, first of all, I have a lot of questions, but yeah. the first one is, <laughs> how do you split the expenses that are joint? I mean, I'm sure yes. in some cases, both people earn the same amount, but if you earn different amounts, substantially different amounts. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And the way we have managed it, and this is quite frankly, it started before we got married. So we moved in together a little bit before we got engaged. And at the time, of course, we didn't have any type of joint accounts or anything. And the way we started just managing our joint expenses, which at the time were you know, very few, was through a, a spreadsheet that I created. So I created a spreadsheet on Google Sheets and applied some math into it. The spreadsheet now is you know, several years old and it has a different tab for every month. <laughs> so if you wanted to review all of our, our financial history, it's all there. But essentially the way we managed it is by sharing all expenses in proportion to our income. We split the expenses for each month based on the cumulative percentage of the income that we have had for the year up to that month. So let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, you know, just to keep the numbers simple. So let's say that on a monthly salary basis, I make twice as much as my wife. So it's now January and we have spent, let's say, just to throw a number out there, $1,000 in our joint expenses. So we basically will divide that in three she will pay a third and I'll pay two thirds to keep it in line. Let's say it's now February. So in the second month, and this is actually the way it works for me, I happen to get a bonus for my job that usually gets paid around February for the results from the previous year. So that month, my income might be a lot higher. So what we do is we add up all the expenses from January and February, as well as both incomes for January and February, and we will do the division again based on 
what percentage each one of us has it's made. essentially a true up. Yeah, it's a true up every month to make sure that by the end of the year, when it comes to December, we have each contributed the same percentage of our income pre-tax to the overall joint expenses. Got it. Sounds a little bit complex to me from a guy who <laughs> really has like joint. But, yeah. But it, I mean, it, but, but I'm an engineer, you see. So this is how I think. I always try to come up with a complex system <laughs> to solve a simple problem. It is a little bit complex, but you know, I but put it works. In, it works for you. It works for us. And we put in, I think, some effort up front creating the, the spreadsheet. And now it's just a matter of entering the amounts every month. And the amounts will be fairly reduced. Like I said, most of the joint expenses come out of the joint credit card. There are some exceptions to that. So for example, rent will be paid by my wife every month. And then at the end of each month, we'll just enter all the numbers, we'll true up, and we'll PayPal each other. If she paid rent, then she paid more than her... Usually, yeah. How does that work? Yeah, usually. So usually she will end up paying... She gets a refund every month. Yeah, usually she gets a, a big refund every month. And, you know, it's just worked out that way, the way we set up our accounts. I used to pay rent before, but after we moved the last time, we, we kind of shifted that around just to try something different. Because, you know, I make more money in this relationship for, for now, for now. Yes, for sure. You know, and sadly that's still the case in, in most cases. I mean, men still do for the most part earn more. In our case, I get more coming into my account each month. I also tend to have, I think, fewer expenses of my own. Honestly, I'm just a very frugal guy. I, I know that from college <laughs> and post-college. <laughs> I barely buy any clothes for myself. So it felt a little bit weird to me to have my wife PayPal me at the end of, of each month. There's a psychological aspect to it where I feel like in me doing that, it's like kind of acknowledging the fact that at the end of each month, it feels like when we true up, she gets a little bit more and it just makes things easier. <laughs> Hurts your manlyhood. It's, it's a psychological thing. <laughs> The other question I had, which I think is an important one, is like, how do you deal with investments, you know, savings, like long-term goals? Is it also a proportion of income? You fund those goals in a proportion of income? How does it work? Yeah, it's funny because for savings, I think we view savings, uh, long-term savings a little bit differently. It's not a proportion of income, it's a proportion of assets, if you will. I see a puzzled look yeah. in your face. <laughs> so... In addition to the monthly expenses, the spreadsheet also has a tab where we keep track of all of our assets as they accumulate over time. While we have our joint expenses, we also have our separate expenses, which because we manage those through our separate accounts and separate credit cards, we really have no visibility on that. Yeah. So periodically, we will update our asset tab <laughs> to make sure that we are in line with our goals in terms of savings and things like that. And when so if you're saving for a down payment, just walk me through the mechanics of like how it works. On the spreadsheet, we have allocated money for a fund for a down payment, for example. Yeah. So if, and this is again, just to throw numbers out there, I'm not, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head for my specific case, but let's say if, let's say I have $70,000 and my wife has $30,000, 
if we had to allocate $50,000 for a home, I would do 70% of that and she would do 30% of that. Oh, I see. So it's dependent on, okay, got it's it. a, it's, yeah. yeah, so it's an allocation based, an equal allocation based on the assets that we've been able to got save. It. And again, that's just also recognizing the fact that, you know, we might have throughout our previous lives been able to save more or less for a variety of reasons. So we're contributing an equal amount proportional to what we were able to save you know, before and what we're able to save even today. But if the down payment is $100,000, are you going to put in 70 and 30? So if it comes time to actually disimburse our total amount of savings, yes. Yeah. When it comes time to write a check, one of us will write a check and we'll true up just like we do every month. Got it. Uh, but we'll do that based on assets because it's a big expense. It kind of falls outside of the kind of month to month expenses, if you will. Again, it's, I <laughs> understand it's a very maybe over-engineered solution. But it works for you. It works for us. Is there a reason to do that? And not like, I just gave up and said, whatever I have is my wife's and whatever she has is hers yeah. also. <laughs> you know, the biggest reason is the fact that this is kind of my own approach to it. I want to make sure that, you know, recognizing that I would be contributing more into our joint expenses. I never wanted to fall into a situation where I feel like my wife needs to ask permission or somehow justify certain expenses that she might have that I may disagree with. So I wanted to make sure that she had the space to actually make those decisions by herself without having to consult me or without having to check with me. And the fact that we keep our separate accounts allows her to do that without me even like having to think about it. That's an interesting point of view there. I think that makes total sense. I've seen cases where that can create arguments between people, right? Why do you spend this much on this? Why do you spend that much on that? So we kind of bypass that. You know, it'd still be a discussion that we have for the joint expenses, but never for our own personal expenses. So if she wants to treat herself with her own money to something that I may not agree with, it just avoids that conversation. You make a good point there. And I think it's something that, that should be considered when people join their accounts or join in, in marriage. There was another way of doing things, which we'll get to that later. So we talked about goals. We talked about brokerage, like broker accounts. We talked about the reconciliation, which is like the true up and how you guys split expenses and credit cards and banking structure. So... And I want to say something about the brokerage accounts in particular, because I think there's another aspect that goes into that, which is what are we investing on? You mean, what are you investing in and what kind of investments? Or... What kind of investments or the investment decisions? Yeah. What percentage goes to what and all of that. And if we have slightly separate approaches, you have two ways to go about it. Either one person manages it, which is great. If you know one person kind of feels that they have the capacity or the skill to do that and the other person yields is fine. But if not, it does become another point of contention or conversation that we need to just figure out. There are some people who are just by this position more conservative than others. Of course, I see that all the time. And by having separate investment accounts, we each kind of manage our own risk, (laughs) our own risk level separately while knowing that we each have access to each other's assets at the end of the day. What I usually do is if someone has two very different risk profiles, 
I will try to take the average of it unless the goal that they have requires a higher rate of investment return. That's kind of like the questions, like what is the required rate of return to meet that goal with this current saving level? And if that rate of return is between, let's say, you know, six and 7% and like both people are above the 7% of risk tolerance, then I'll just use the average. But if someone is at 4% and the other one is at eight, well, to meet that goal, you need us between six and 7% rate of return. We're going to have to do at, at least six. And, uh, you know, in some cases up to seven. Yeah. Right now we manage that separately, completely. And, you know, we basically live with that. We just keep track of it periodically to know where we stand. And if one account is growing quicker than the other. Who's more risk averse? (laughs) My wife is more risk averse. I'm a cowboy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But um, if one account grows more quickly than the other, all that that means is that it will be a higher percentage of assets. So that account will have to contribute more to whatever large joint expense we have to deal with. In in the end, the way I think about it is like, it all comes down to the same amount because I think a lot of it has to do with psychological management, (laughs) you know, of things. No, and I'm sure you encounter that a lot, you know, with your clients that financial planning is a lot of managing emotions and managing risk and things like that, that are very psychological at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the the financial planning is psychological. It's trying to adapt someone's, I would say it's adapting someone's, you know, psychological constraints to the plan itself, but that's life. And you know, that's, that's what makes it exciting and challenging trying to find solutions that are out of the box. It's worth noting. You remember Brett Latcher, he's on episode four. We were talking uh, also outside of the recording about banking structure. The way he has it, and I'm speaking out of memory now, so I could get it wrong, but the way he has it is that everything comes in into a joint account, their income, and then they have you know split streams of allowances. They each get equal allowances into their own banking account. So they can save, if they don't spend that allowance, they can save it up before something special. And then, you know, the joint expenses are from the joint account and each one has their own spending from their separate accounts. So the allowance is like a set amount. So their separate accounts is essentially a fixed amount they get each month. I think in your case, it's the other way around, right? The joint expenses... It's similar, but it's still different the way the money comes in. Money comes in, in your case, in the separate accounts, and then joint expenses get funded. Yeah, I mean, I think the key difference is, in this case, the allowance is, in a sense, a constant proportion of, of what your own income is, which, you know, things have changed a little bit since we become parents. Expenses have, have grown a lot. The joint expenses have grown again. Have grown exponentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isaac's and the little baby's uh, yeah. expenses have become a greater proportion of the total expenses. It's become quite significant. So I think that's changed the dynamic a little bit. Actually, in listening to your show, we were discussing whether we should apply some changes you know, to the way we run things. Because the way it works right now because we have no visibility on each other's expenses, we really have no visibility also on each other's savings until we true up at the end. And we have you know, kind of high-level goals, but there's no really too much control for the non-joint piece. So the joint expenses 
I think we have a very good control of. But once you start doing the math, because our joint expenses have grown so much, what that means is that we each get less and less for personal. Yeah, less for and personal less personal. Yeah. yeah, less and less for our personal expenses, which means that we're not always, let's say, meeting like our external saving goals, if you will. So that makes it a little bit more difficult to manage. And that's become more of an issue, I would say, since the baby was born. So maybe it's time to start addressing that. And maybe the system that worked for us at the beginning might not work for us going forward. Yeah. I always thought that at the point when you have a baby and at the point when you buy a house, the majority of assets are joint now because when you buy a house, you're technically buying 50-50. Yeah. And the kid is technically, hopefully, (laughs) (laughs) 50-50. But the expenses, the kid's proportion of the expenses is actually a great amount. It is a great amount. It's just like insignificant sometimes just have separate stuff. So yeah, maybe for simplicity, it makes sense. To, yeah, for to simplicity. But, but again, I do worry about when you get to that, I do feel like you end up having to weigh each expense between, oh, should I be spending this on myself or should I be spending this on, on a joint expense, right? One of the things that I think is important and maybe the answer is having that allowance having the set allowance does allow you to kind of make expenses for yourself without feeling guilty about it. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, have a level of deeper control. Of, of having a little bit more control and visibility on what is happening on the side. Yeah. Do you happen to have a budget, of like a 12-month going forward budget? We don't have a strict budget. We have a, a fuzzy budget. And again, I think... It's like a government budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's something else that we've started reconsidering since having a child because, you know, the fuzzy budget, it really doesn't cover too much of our separate expenses. And I think that's the part that we're starting to run into like, okay, maybe that's a problem. <laughs> maybe there are things in the, that we should be doing in our joint expenses to allow ourselves to have more of that freedom with the separate accounts? Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit of a story. Um, sure. I manage budgets for, that's part of the, you know, the services I do. And I create you know, forward-looking budgets for a lot of people. And those people who are married and have a couple of children and live in the suburbs, specifically of New York, there's some lumpy expenses that you have to consider when you're doing your budget you know, AKA property taxes, mm-hmm. which are paid. I don't know. Like, I think they're four times a year in Long Island. And usually it's four times a year, maybe, or twice a year. I've seen some other places. Right. And if you don't budget for those, it will ruin a couple of months and create a lot of stress. Right. The other portion that people need to budget for is, you know, a lot of folks send their kids to camp. That's common here in the Northeast. Right. And, camp is expensive and it's quite a substantial payment that you have to make. And if you have three kids going all to camp, you better prepare for that. (laughs) Yeah. We're starting to have to think about those things, whereas before we didn't. So I think honestly, on the first year, the baby expenses are a little bit more evenly distributed. You know, because it's diapers, it's formula. Yeah. There were a lot of expenses. Childcare is like the expensive one. Childcare is expensive, yes. At the same time, it's recurrent. So you can plan for it ahead. It's not that kind of lump sum type of expense. 
all of those expenses came up front, <laughs> right? Getting the crib, getting the the stroller and things like that. But I think we had a, we had a good lump sum set aside for that, for those lump expenses that you're talking about that are, are recurring every year and potentially somewhat unpredictable. We haven't encountered them yet. So we haven't really prepared for them. But, you know, I, I hear you. The deeper I get into this parenthood thing, the more I, I start respecting my own parents for everything that they did, because it is definitely not easy. And there's a lot of unforeseen things that just come up from out of nowhere, you know, whether it's medical or, or anything else. All of a sudden you wake up and your child happens to be allergic to cow's milk and you can no longer buy the, the formula you thought you were going to buy. You now have to buy the $300 a month German organic special formula. And, you know, these things just happen and there's no, no way to deal with them if, unless you have a... Thank God for solids, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank God for solids. Yes. I think that's only a joke that a parent can understand. <laughs> yeah. Very good. I have one final question here. If you could go back to yourself three years ago and give like five tips or three tips, what would they have been? You mean in terms of joint accounts or anything that has to do with like banking structure and like saving for, you know, unpredictable expenses? Yeah. I mean, I do think that, you know, and especially listening to your show, it's gotten me to think a lot about some of the pre-planning. I think we do a good job of tracking after the fact and trying to adjust for the future. If we have like a particularly weird looking month or if we see something kind of odd that we, oh, we should have plan for that. So like, let's take a different approach in the future. It really has gotten me thinking about the fact that we should have been planning more ahead and set a, a window by which we need to set some goals and then review them at the end of that period. You know, we do that all the time for work, but quite frankly, we don't do it enough at home. So that's, I think, number one. I think you asked for five. I think I'm going to give you three. <laughs> give, me, give me two. I don't, it's fine. <laughs> Number two, so this is one thing that I'm only now starting to, to scratch the surface off, which is the fact that for the longest time, and this is not even when we started our joint accounts, this is from even from before, I've been very bad at trying to maximize points. <laughs> and actually, it's become apparent just, you know, once you're, our joint expenses, which going to go into our joint card, once they got past a certain threshold, you know, the points that we were getting out of those expenses were, you know, they're significant, right? And it's a significant, it's almost like an extra source of income if you want to look at it that way. I usually call it as like, it pays for the vacation. Yeah, sure. It pays for the vacation. But the thing is, it pays for the vacation if you're maximizing. And I feel like we hadn't actually been maximizing them. We hadn't been paying enough attention to it. And now sometimes we want to plan a vacation. We're like, oh, if we had chosen this other card, or if we had split our expenses differently, if we had used this card instead of that other card for this type of expense, then we would be able to just pay for this vacation in full with which points. Which card do you have now? <laughs> I have the Chase. Sapphire, the one? No. no, no, no. Hold on. Let me open my wallet. Yeah, Chase, Sapphire, but we have the preferred. Oh, I, I also do have the preferred. I mean, um, we don't have the, the reserve. The reserve. Yeah, it generates more points for each dollar, right? It generates more points specifically for food expenses. Got it. So which groceries, are restaurants, groceries, and restaurants, which mm -hmm. are such a large percentage of what we spend on. 
you would get 1.5x the amount of points for that expense. And for us, it's such a big percentage that, you know, we have been looking into that. And we're looking to change that now, but that is one thing that I don't think... Do you buy a lot of stuff from Amazon, by the way? Uh, she does. Okay. <laughs> on the joint account. On the, do you have an Amazon card? Uh, we do not. I think it's like 5% back from Amazon. Okay. And Whole Foods. Okay. Right. Oh, that's good to know because we do go to Whole Foods. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> we call it the whole paycheck. <laughs> yeah. So because before I got married, I was just so frugal in my own expenses, I really didn't see the value of points until we actually started spending a lot more uh, especially since, since the birth of our son. And, and we realized like, okay, if we had just had a different card, if we had planned things a little bit differently, then we would be able to take this vacation fully on points. We've never truly been able to do that just because we haven't been maximizing, I think. So that's two. <laughs> I think that was, that's good enough. I just wanted to say thank you. It's very, very interesting to hear your the way you actually structured it. It's very different from everybody. I think, you know, very again... Unique. Yeah, very unique. I think if it works for you and as you know, most listeners, whatever works for you and as long as it makes sense and you can maintain that structure, go for it. Yeah, I think the one closing thought that I would like to bring up is that it's worked for us so far. We have been talking about changing it because of some of the things that, like I mentioned earlier, I do feel like the lack of visibility does create a little bit of uncertainty where we don't really know how we're performing as a household overall. So I think as we've become parents, and especially as, you know, we're looking to buy a house, starting to think about how we're going to pay for college. I mean, it's pretty early, I know, but we have to- It's never early to save for college. <laughs> That's true. Do you have a 529 plan open? We, we do. That's another- <laughs> Are you funding it? <laughs> yeah, we are. So things change in our life. And like, we have to adapt and like, I think adapting our finances to meet that is important. So I thank you for that because I do think that actually listening to your show has prompted us to actually start having some of these discussions between ourselves about what's working and what's not working about how we should be adapting for the future. That makes sense. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Happy birthday. Thank you. I want to thank Gabriel for being on the show, taking time out of his busy schedule to really let me interview him on this personal subject. I really appreciate this, and I think our listeners will too. Let's move on to tech. From a practical point of view, we could technically have a pretty complicated account structure out there. So we need to be able to track those accounts. And there are a couple of tech tools that will help us with it. If we divide the landscape into the free and non-free. Starting by the free, you have mint.com and personal capital. Now they both come with some strings attached. Mint sells your data and also will, I think, bombard you with ads. It's pretty good though. The interface is nice and it's free. On the other hand, you have personal capital. The app is fantastic. I really like it. Unfortunately, it comes also with some strings attached. You will have some random financial advisor calling you and asking you to manage your money, but the app is pretty good. On the paid side, you obviously have Excel. Most people pay for the office suite, so I consider it a paid app. On the other hand, you also have Tiller, tillerhq.com. Tiller uses Google Sheets and it links it up to your 
banks and your credit cards and it downloads all the transactions into those sheets. There's some awesome templates out there. It's 60 bucks a year. I actually really like it. I use it. So that's what we have for those tools. Today's special app is Truebill. Truebill is actually not new anymore. I think it's like three years old, but it's been pretty useful for me. I used it for monitoring my subscriptions. So at one point I had a ton of subscriptions out there for some different services. Truebill was able to identify them. And once they were identified, I cut a couple of them out of my life. They now, I think, also negotiate with your subscriptions for better pricing. I've never used it. So if you have any comments on that, just email me. I'd be curious to know. So that's all I had about tech. Let's move on to this week's improvement idea. So almost all banks have mobile apps that give you access to mobile banking. My suggestion is download your mobile app. It has reduced the amount of times I go to the branch. I no longer deposit checks in the branch. I use my phone for it. It is very helpful and a huge time saver. Let's move on to the mailbag segment. This is where we answer questions from the audience. So this week's question is, can you get a tax deduction when moving for a job? So there has been a little bit of confusion here. You used to be able to, and you still can, but on a very limited basis. So the answer is no. (laughs) As of today, September 2019, you can't get a tax deduction when you're moving for a job. But there is one notable exception. There's like three conditions for it. If you are in the military on active duty, if you move pursuant to a military order, an instant to a permanent change of station. So the moving expenses would qualify as a deduction if the employee did not give you a reimbursement of the expense. So that is it. You have to be in the military. It has to be pursuant to a military order and you didn't get the expenses reimbursed. So let's move on to my wife's favorite part of the show, which is trivia. So how does this work? Go to moneybagel.com slash trivia and answer this episode, episode five, the following questions. And they are, who was the first US president to be impeached? Yes, we're all talking about impeachment now. So I thought this would be relevant. The second question is, what was the first city to reach a population of 1 million? Some history. Not sure if everybody knows about it, but And then according to Greek mythology, who was the first woman on earth? In our next episode, we'll talk about the ABCs of investing. We'll essentially start with a general framework that touches upon risk and return, diversification, dollar cost averaging, compound interest, the importance of time in the market, keeping expenses low, asset allocation, not following the crowd, margin of safety. There's a ton to cover. And I highly suggest that you listen to the next episode. In fact, I think you should subscribe now to make sure you get the next episode. So did you like this episode of the Money Bagel Show? Would love if you could share it with your friends or even better, subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. All matters discussed during the show are for informational purposes only. Opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Each individual situation may vary and the opinions expressed here may not apply to everyone. 
materials presented are believed to be from reliable sources and no representation can be made as to its accuracy. All performance references are historical and there's no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested directly. Gabriel Kaplan or the Money Bagel Show are not affiliated or endorsed by any firm or governmental agency.